Hey, are you there? Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? Um, can you hear me? Hello? Can you hear me? Hello? 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 Hey. Hi there. Beth here. I wanted to give you a little heads up. Today's episode surrounds the topic of suicide. Some parts of this story may be difficult or inappropriate for some listeners. Okay, are you there? Yes, I can hear you. Hey, can you hear me? yes. <laughs> Success. Yay, finally. <laughs> this is Deanna. <laughs> um, I was the little girl who wanted to grow up and be Cinderella. You know, I was going to uh, have the white picket fence and the house and the kids and the dogs. And um, when I met Mike, he was it. We met when I was in my early 20s. I knew from the second date when he pulled out of my driveway, I said, I'm going to marry that man. They got married and waited six years before trying for a child. On November 27th, they gave birth to their first daughter, Emily. She was premature and only lived for two days. You know, that can either draw pull couples apart or draw them closer. And fortunately, we had a lot of support and it helped draw us closer. And um, within a year, I had two C-sections and had, had two children. So our little girl was born on November 27th. The next year, my son Tyler was born on uh, November 11th. I'm pretty stubborn. And once I decided we were having a baby and I was giving my husband a child, that was all there was to it. So um, with Tyler, after losing Emily, I went in the hospital at 20 weeks and was on bed rest in downtown Houston at a hospital called St. Luke's. And um, I laid on my back for seven weeks. And Mike at the time worked in Conroe, which is uh, about an hour and a half north of downtown where I was. And um, he would drive to work, and then drive downtown to see me in the evenings. And finally, Tyler was born at 27 weeks, and he was 2 pounds, 5 ounces. And he's been a little tornado, Tyler, stubborn, whirlwind, joy uh, ever since. Now, as far as spiritual life, the uh, first year that it happened... We were driving to Awana's, and his memory verse for that night was the wages of sin or death. And I was saying, okay, so do you understand what that means as we're, you know, memorizing? And he said, yes. And he said, um, Mama, I want to go to heaven too because I know that's where Daddy is. And so on our way to church that Wednesday night, he prayed and asked the Lord to be his Savior. And I think I think by then he might have been eight, or he might not have been. He might have still been seven. I'm not sure. Um, and then he um, got baptized when he was about 10. And that was a very special thing because uh, Lucian Stoller baptized him. And Lucian baptized my husband as an adult. 
Throughout their marriage, Mike struggled on and off with anxiety, usually for two to three days at a time. His first bout with anxiety was so bad that it drove him to his knees. And as an adult, he came to know Jesus because of it. At the time of this interview, it had been nine years since Mike's death. December of 2020 will mark 10 years. During the last bout of anxiety that Mike had, his company was being bought out. He had spent 20 years at this job and was now responsible for layoffs right before the holidays. Mike was a very sensitive person, and um, that bothered him greatly to have to look somebody in the eye and tell them they were losing their job right at Christmas. And um, he dealt with it at first, and then suddenly he wasn't able to sleep, and he wasn't able to eat. And um, I said, "All all you can do is go to the doctor and see if what she says about what you're experiencing. So he did. He just went to a GP and he came home with what they call a cocktail on the street, which was antidepressant, anti-anxiety, and sleeping pills. So overnight he began taking three new, um, you know, mind-altering drugs. And people assumed that he must have been depressed for some amount of time, and no, that was not the case. Um, He started, he was having anxiety trouble. He began these three drugs all at one time. Um, And sadly, within a week's time, he was worse. And he was almost catatonic. He was still functioning, but he wasn't eating. Um, He wasn't able to sleep. He would go to work, and he wouldn't almost be able to work. Um, Then one night, I believe it was a week after Thanksgiving, we had just decorated our house for Christmas. It was on a Monday night, and um, he called me from work, and it was like 4 o'clock, I guess, in the afternoon, and he said, I don't know what to do. And I said, what do you mean? What's wrong, baby? What What do you mean you don't know what to do? He said, I don't know. I just don't know what to do. And I could tell he was off. Something wasn't right. And I said, what do you need me to do? Do you need me to come get you? Do I need to meet you at the ER? Do I need to call your HR person and have someone drive you? What what do you want me to do? And he said, no, I can drive, but I will meet you at the ER. So my dad quickly came over uh, to watch our son, and um, I met him at the ER. We waited for, for five hours <laughs> to see anyone because we were not a medical emergency, So meaning he was not having a heart attack. So we could wait, you know, t- uh, we had to be triaged, basically. When we finally did see someone, um, they told us basically, unless you're saying you're going to hurt yourself, and he said, no, I don't want to hurt myself, but I want this to stop. And um, the uh, it was just a resident that was seeing us at the ER, and he said, I'm going to give you some more Xanax. 
which is the anti-anxiety. And he said, dude, you need to calm your storm. And I felt like that was a little bit off. That's not quite the answer you want to hear because we're needing some help calming the storm, obviously. Um, and then he said, and then I'll, all I can tell you is start trying to get into a psychiatrist because at this point you're already on meds and you need to go get it regulated better. Well, if you know anything about psychiatrists, which at that point I did not, we couldn't get in for a month. I spent, he stayed home the next morning because he was exhausted. Um, I spent the morning calling every psychiatrist in our area on our insurance plan and couldn't get in for a month. So by afternoon, um, he was like not doing well. And I said, all I can think to do is for you to go back to the GP that gave you the medication in the first place, tell her how you're feeling, tell her what we went through at the ER last night, and see what her recommendations are. Well, he came home an hour later with stronger extended release sleeping pills. So that was... we had gone to the ER Monday evening. That was Tuesday. Um, by Friday, his alarm went off at 6 a.m. Um, he went in the bathroom and shut the door to get in the shower, as he always did every day. He was a very routine. I called him my steady Freddy. You know, we did the same things every day. And um, he went in the closet and he shot himself in the head. And at that moment, <laughs> my world turned upside down and chaos ensued and um, took, well, it still takes every day of nine years <laughs> to, to deal with that. And, and I don't mean that every day is bad, um, certainly not. And nine years later, I am a, a stronger, more informed uh, self-dependent person than I've ever had to be in my life. Mm -hmm. um, but it was a very, very hard time. You know, when you, when something bad happens in your life and you're married, your spouse is the one who gets you through it. Yeah. And suddenly my spouse was the cause of this. Mm -hmm. And he was the last, you know, if you put a hundred people in a room, Mike Lockmiller was not someone who would do that. Yeah. So I know as uh, along with the anxiety, part of it was medication induced. It was not working well for him. And then he was given more and more. And um, I think if we had gone several different avenues that maybe things would have been different. Um, but again, the Lord allows things in this, you know, he passed this through his filter before he let it happen. Yeah. And that's something that I have to accept. I have to accept it for my son. Um, it's the last person, the last situation I ever thought I would be in. You know, I was 
I was the one that wanted to be married since I was four years old. And you don't get married to be a widow at 39. Yeah. But, um, sorry. (laughs) No, you're okay. Take your time. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, there's the analogy of our lives are a tapestry. And when you turn them over, they're ugly. They're ugly, and there's so many ugly threads. But when you turn them over, there's beautiful and lots of beautiful threads. And I have lots and lots of ugly. But I have lots of beautiful, too. And I also know that if it were not for the Lord, I couldn't have made it through, and I still can't. But just like in Genesis, when Joseph's brothers threw him in the pit, eventually he was able, because of that darkness, to help others. And just like he said, The enemy meant this to harm me, but the Lord meant it for good. And I will always know, and I will always hope, that this isn't the end of my story. And there's good that has come out of it, so much good. And hopefully there will still be more. And that has always been my prayer since the beginning. I remember I would lay in the floor, literally roll out of bed, lay on the floor, and say, if you don't get me through this day, I can't do it. And somehow, 365 days a year for nine years, I've done it. But I know I wouldn't have, not for his strength. Um. And that's what people like, you know, they love to say, you're so strong. I can't believe what you've been through. I'm not strong. You know, the Bible tells us we're made perfect in his, uh, our weakness is made perfect by his strength. Um, I'm not strong. I just, it, it brought me to a place where by experience I learned where my strength comes from and who I have to rely on and that things like this make you realize you're not in control. We have the semblance that we control our lives and, you know, that we're making this happen and we're going to plan this and it's going to happen. No, God orders your steps. You can make all the plans in the world. And if that's not what he desires, that's not what's going to happen. But when you walk with him, he gives you the strength you need. And his plans are better and greater than ours. And I would never be the person I am now if I hadn't gone through everything I've gone through. And believe me, I still wish <laughs> I still wish I didn't have to. 
Deanna's church family provided for them. They did small things like mowing her lawn. They met at Starbucks to just let her talk it out. And they did fundraising to help financially. Like I say, you know, there's been so much good. And he has provided along the way. At the time this happened, I was a stay-at-home mom. I did not have a degree. And suddenly, I lost my companion, my the person I shared life with, the person I ate, slept, and raised a child with, made vacation plans with, everything. It changed everything. And I lost my home because, you know, A, I couldn't afford it, but B, once that happened, I couldn't step foot in there again. It was like a dark, dark place. And um, I just couldn't go back there by myself. Anytime I had to go back and, you know, get it ready to be put on the market, somebody had to go with me. And um, it just, it it changed who I was for a while in that I was, had this paralyzing fear at times and um the only way i could get through that was scripture and you know the bible says take captive every thought well how do you do that you have to replace it with something you have to replace it with scripture and that's how i survived um at the time, Max Lucado released a little book um, about the 23rd Psalm. And 23rd Psalm had always been part of my, you know, my repertoire. But it was uh, something that as a child you you memorized. And it just, it's kind of like singing Twinkle, Twinkle. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't mean anything to you after a while. And suddenly he had this book right at the right time. And it went through verse by verse by verse of what each of those things meant. And like when it talks about you anoint my head with oil, what's that? That's referring to the shepherds took care of their sheep. And what they had to do was pour um, a special oil on their sheep's heads and inside their nostrils because there are these flies that will burrow into their flesh and that oil prevents that. And if they don't do that, those flies will absolutely drive the sheep crazy. They will bat their heads against rocks and anything to stop that craziness from those flies burrowing into their flesh. And that's, that's just one thing that just showed me how he cares for us. You anoint my head with oil. And at that time, I might as well have those flies burrowing in me because I was losing my mind. I was literally going crazy. And it was a really horrible, dark time. And so all I could do was memorize scripture and... I did every Bible study I could get my hands on. And his word is what kept me going. Along with 
a lot of long walks and praise music and tears streaming down my face as I would walk and pass people and I know they thought I was crazy <laughs> because there's that girl goes crying and singing again every day I, I would get up and I would have to have my devotion and it was like he just was roaring every day a scripture would be the exact thing I needed you know, he just, he takes care of us in the way that we need at the right times. Deanna describes herself now as a suicide survivor, someone left behind. And now she hopes she can help others who are left behind, other suicide survivors. At that time, I, I had told someone it feels like and we, we here in Houston uh, love our hurricanes. But um, I said it feels like the back of my house has been ripped off. And the storm keeps blowing. And the wind is blowing. And the rain is coming in. And it won't stop. And I can't get out. And I'm having to just hang on and find a higher place. But every step of the way, he was there. And I remember my house sold very quickly and I was able to rebuy a smaller home. And I remember the day we were packing up, I just fell on the floor upstairs of that house and I just prayed God don't leave me here not meaning in that house but in this stage you can't live in that place of pain forever and uh, a dear friend from Sunday school told me one time she said she called me and she said, Deanna, I know you're focusing on Mike, and this is all about Mike to you and the loss of him. She said, but it's not about Mike anymore. It's about you. And everyone is watching to see how you handle this. She said, and I don't mean that in a bad way, like you have to perform or be perfect. She said, but it's now, a, it's a spiritual battle. And I realized that it was so true. It wasn't about Mike anymore, even though he was still my focus. Um, it was going to be about how I lived my life, how I raised my child. And I have not done it perfectly. I never will do it perfectly. Um... But, oh my goodness, I know why I'm here. And I know how I'm here. And it has everything to do with my Savior. We go, There's verses about going through the fire, going through the water, uh, going through the desert. And suicide is something you have to go through. You can't 
pretend it didn't happen. You don't get over it. It just becomes a part of who you are. And each day you get up and you go through it. Because we really can't understand it because there is no profile of someone who commits suicide. There's not, you know, if we could do that, we could prevent all of them. But it's not. It can be a teenager who ha- who breaks up with their girlfriend or boyfriend. It can be Robin Williams who has everything. And everybody thought he was so funny and happy. It can be Mike Clockmiller who gets up and goes to work every day and does the right thing. And I, I certainly am no expert at that. Um, my heart's desire is more to help those who are left behind because it shatters you in a way that no other death does. I mean, I will never, I'm not discounting any other type of death. Cancer is horrendous. Um, Accidents are horrendous. Old age is horrendous. But suicide has such, is a a very multi-layered onion. I mean, it just, there's the shame. You don't want to say that you're, you know, my happy family, my husband who loved me, committed suicide he left us nobody wants to say that Um, there is you know stigma in society that they're just crazy well they were just crazy nobody in their right mind would do that well you're right at the moment nobody in their right mind would but he wasn't crazy Deanna's story didn't turn out the Cinderella fairy tale she was hoping for. She had this idea in her head of what her story would be, and then one day it was just completely changed. And we all live by a story, and our stories have power over us. And some stories are more powerful than others. Her counselor helped her to work through the story of Mike's suicide. And that was another thing that my therapist did that helped me because at the time I was so shell-shocked. I couldn't say the word suicide. I couldn't even say widow. I mean, they were suddenly, it was my identity and I didn't like it. It was dirty words. It's the last person I wanted to be was the widow because of suicide. And so she had me write down my story and just the, um, the story of the basics of that day, the part where the horror started with that gunshot. And, um, I wrote that down and every time I would go the first couple of minutes, I had to reread that story out loud until it finally had no power over me. And now God is writing a new story. All right, here we go. The Book of Ruth is a short book found in the Old Testament. This is Heather Enright, author of Sowing in Tears. It tells the story of an Israelite family and what happens during a time of famine. 
And on the surface, it's a love story between a very unlikely love story between a prestigious Israelite man and a Moabitess widow. But there's so many more layers to it. In the first chapter, it opens with Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons. When famine comes, Naomi and Elimelech make the interesting decision to go and live in the, in the territory of Moab. Now, Moab is the enemies of the Israelites, but yet Naomi and Elimelech not only go to live in the territory of Moab, but their sons marry Moabitess women. Elimelech dies, and then as they're there for 10 years, Naomi and Elimelech's two sons also die, leaving Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to be widows. So Naomi gets word that God is providing food once again to his people, and she makes a decision to go back to her hometown of Bethlehem. Ruth makes the bold declaration that she will not leave Naomi, but she will go with her into the land of Judah and return to the city of Bethlehem. In the second chapter of Ruth, Ruth asks Naomi if she may go glean in the fields. What Ruth is asking there is that um, she would like to comply with the ancient tradition that women who are widows, who are foreigners, those who are less than, were instructed to go and glean in the fields after Naomi gives her the okay to go and glean. Ruth works diligently, and her reputation apparently um, comes before her because Boaz who is the owner of the field she happened upon, comes around that time and notices her in the field among all of his overseers, among all of his workers, among all of those gleaning. He makes note of Ruth in the field. And then she goes home that day and tells Naomi where she happened to glean. And Naomi says, this is the field of Boaz, who is a close relative. He is one of our redeemers. So Naomi is saying he is one of the people in the family of Elimelech, who has been instructed to care for those widowed. And she instructs Ruth to go and meet him in the threshing floor. And as he lays down for the night, to lay at his feet and request that he put his cloak over her. So Naomi is wanting to guarantee a future, in other words, for Ruth. And she's offering her this very bold act to go and essentially request a Boaz to become the Redeemer. Ruth does exactly as Naomi has instructed, and in the middle of the night, when Boaz realizes somebody is at his feet, he inquires and realizes it's Ruth. She says, I am your servant. Please become my redeemer, and he agrees to take care of things. So in the morning, she goes back to Naomi, and Naomi um, says, how did it go? And as Ruth explains, Naomi says, he will not rest until he has settled this matter. So this story ends with this beautiful picture of redemption where Ruth has moved from the fields gleaning as a Moabitess widow to becoming a bride of Bethlehem. One interesting thing to note is that Boaz's mother was Rahab. So Boaz's mom was the prostitute in Jericho who saved the Israelite spies and thus she and her family were preserved when Jericho fell and they too entered the promised land with the Israelites. So perhaps Boaz, because of his lineage, could see past the labels of Ruth. But for whatever reason, it stirred his heart. He was unashamed in taking her to be his wife. 
and they give birth to Obed, who is the grandfather of David. Of course, the lineage of Jesus comes from Ruth and Boaz. So on the surface, it's this great love story and this tale of redemption, but there are so many deep layers there in how God is imaged and the way that he too redeems us and uses the things in our life for his kingdom purpose. You know, I'm still praying uh, for a new love and for a husband that will love me. And, uh, you know, dating in your 40s, is is a whole nother show. We'll do a different podcast on that. <laughs> I've named named him. His name is Boaz. <laughs> and I pray for my Boaz every evening that the Lord is preparing him for me and me for him. And that someday that will happen again. Um and otherwise, you know what? Life is still good. Life still has perf- purpose. And um, I pray that telling my story, even though, you know, there's never an end to your story, that someone will find hope. Or even better, will find their Savior in Jesus Christ. And um, that would be the best thing I could hope for out of all of this. Thank you for listening to Redeemed. You can check out our show notes for a list of resources that Deanna used as she was grieving and walking through healing. We have some really exciting things coming up for the show. The biggest one in January will be a live recording done at Proclaim Truth conference in North Texas. If you're interested in this conference or other resources available through it, check out our show notes for links. If you are a suicide survivor, or if you or someone you know struggles with mental health issues, there is hope. 